0: You escape under cover of night. Packing what little you own into a sack, you toss it over your shoulder and join a handful of others on the back roads. The journey would be perilous enough as it is, but your skin color and station in life make it all the more dangerous. But what are your choices? Stay where you are and serve your oftentimes abusive oppressors for the rest of your days, or take a chance at freedom? You decide you'd rather die free than live in shackles. After all, the nation's Declaration of Independence states, quite clearly, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You want a taste of these rights for yourself, and by God, you're going to get get them or die trying period of about 80 years, this was the plight in which many African Americans found themselves. A network of routes that linked the American South with the Northern Free States, the Underground Railroad helped save the lives of an estimated 100,000 slaves between 1800 and 1865 alone. Some simply wished to escape the harsh conditions they endured on southern plantations for the relative freedom of northern towns and cities. For others, nothing less than relocating to another country entirely. In this case, the United States' northern neighbor, Canada, then part of the British Empire, or even Mexico would suffice. Regardless of their destinations, the Underground Railroad was the intricate system that got them there. What are the origins of this gateway to freedom? Who were some of the famous figures that built and traversed its many routes? And what legacy did it leave behind? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The first African slaves in North America arrived on August 20th, 1619, in the Jamestown colony of Virginia. They had reportedly been kidnapped by Portuguese slave traders in Angola, a country on the west coast of Africa. Once in Jamestown, they were bought by the English colonists, thus establishing slavery in colonial America. They were immediately put to work growing and harvesting tobacco, the colony's primary cash crop. Already in those days, there were naturally stories about runaway or escaped slaves, the penalty of which, if caught, was often beating whipping, amputation of limbs, or even death. It's important to note that, in colonial America's formative years, both the northern and southern colonies practiced forms of slavery. In the north, slavery itself was practiced to a lesser extent, and indentured servitude, a practice that was carried over directly from England, was imposed on both white Europeans and black Africans. A person could buy their freedom or passage to the colonies by working for a wealthy landowner or merchant for a period of seven years. In the heavy agriculture-based economy of the south, slavery was much more acceptable, and even vital to the growing, harvesting and sale of such crops as cotton, tobacco, and sugar. But, by the early 18th century, shifting attitudes in the north slowly but surely began to bring about changes. What was once acceptable in New England was seen as a heinous crime against humanity by certain religious factions of the time, namely the Quakers. Confined mainly to the colonies of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, the Quakers believed, among other things, that the practice of slavery was sinful and should be abolished altogether. A Christian faction whose roots can be traced back to England, the Quakers founded Barbaric and began establishing staunch anti-slavery organizations and campaigns, the first of their kind, in towns and cities where they settled. Their movements soon gained traction outside of Quakers' circles as well, causing a gradual shift from indentured servitude to abolitionism. But in the South, the practice remained. There was deemed an economic necessity, which trumped the morality of the idea that all men are created equal. They also had to their advantage an ideal climate and available land upon which to reap the benefits of the natural bounty that surrounded them. As such, slaves were the life's blood of such an environment, and the key factor in keeping the southern economy running smoothly. The rift caused by these differing opinions would peg north and south against one another, and, though they would unite to fight their shared enemy, the British, during the American Revolution, it would set the stage for the American Civil War, a little under a century later. As early as the late 18th century, the first slave escape routes were laid down. They crisscrossed much of the known country at the time. Perhaps not surprisingly, it was the Quakers who were among the first groups to help these runaways, providing them with food, shelter, and even passage to freedom. By 1793, the situation of escaped slaves had gotten so out of hand, quote-unquote, that the fledgling United States government implemented the Fugitive Slave Act, in which officials of so-named free states, those where slavery had been outlawed, were required to aid and assist slave owners in the search for their missing property. However, the citizenry of said free states, more often than not, opted to look the other way, aiding the fugitive slaves and helping them to escape to safety. For years, Southern plantation and slave owners griped over this act, stating that it wasn't strict enough and that Northerners took it too lightly, as it didn't directly affect them. As a result, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was implemented nearly 60 years after the first. Part of the famed Compromise of 1850, during which time the federal government sought to appease both Southern slaveholding interests and Northern abolitionism, this new act created harsher penalties for escaped slaves and those who helped them. Not only that, but it also installed a panel of commissioners, namely Southern Democrats who were sympathetic to the slave owner's plight. During this time, many fugitive slaves were captured and returned to their masters. Regardless of these two acts, by the early 19th century, what would one day become known as the Underground Railroad was well underway. What arose was a complex yet ingenious system that used coded language borrowed from the railroad industry. Conductors guided the runaways along the way. They could be black or white. The former oftentimes had been slaves themselves at one point and led them through the safest and lesser-known routes to get them to safety. Stations or depots along the way were safe houses where the slaves could hide, rest, and enjoy a meal. They could be churches, schoolhouses, or even private residences. They were run by station masters, black or white individuals or families who opened their doors to aid the fugitives. Despite this terminology, the name Underground Railroad didn't come into being until 1831, when a Kentucky slave owner famously blamed, quote, an underground railroad, unquote, for one of his slaves' sudden disappearance. The slave, Tice Davids, had in fact fled to neighboring Ohio, a free state. Use of the term became official in 1839 when it appeared in an article of a Washington, D.C. newspaper. Much like an actual railroad, there were many routes which comprised the Underground Railroad at its height, roughly 1850 to 1865. Naturally, many of them led to the north. The ones most traveled were those that led their passengers through Ohio and to points further west like Indiana and Iowa. Still others led through the northeast, with Pennsylvania a frequent resettlement for runaway slaves. This makes sense, as Pennsylvania was home to one of the largest concentration of Quakers at the time. Some slaves opted to make their new homes in New York or Boston, but many chose to skip their north entirely the aforementioned fugitive slave acts namely the revised one enacted in eighteen fifty meant that those on the take were keeping their eyes peeled even in the north for a number of runaway slaves nothing less than making the trek all the way up to the canadian border would suffice Canada, at the time, was still under the jurisdiction of the British Empire. It wouldn't receive its independence until 1867. As Britain had abolished slavery in the early 19th century, the fugitive slaves saw the opportunity to make a fresh start in America's neighbor to the north. In fact, several operators on the Underground Railroad had established themselves there permanently, working to help the escapees arrive safely and settle into their new home. Once there, the former slaves could live wherever they wished, serve on juries, and even run for office. Even fewer sought refuge not in the Free States, not in Canada, but in Mexico. That country, which had outlawed slavery in 1829, saw fugitive slaves sneak across the border by crossing the Rio Grande in Texas on bales of cotton, sneaking onto cargo and ferry ships bound for Mexican ports, or riding horses across vast expanses of desert. Some abolitionists and free slaves even petitioned to set up colonies there to help other escapees. A number of notable figures served the Underground Railroad throughout its history, some of whom would go on to become legends in their own right. One of its most famous conductors, for example, was a woman born Araminta Ross, who's perhaps better known by her married name, Harriet Tubman. Born into slavery, she escaped from a Maryland plantation in 1849 with two of her brothers. They sought refuge in Pennsylvania, but Tubman returned multiple times to save family and others. Shortly thereafter, she joined the Underground Railroad's cause, leading escaped slaves to safety to the north and even up into... Canada. Levi and Catherine Cotton, Quakers from Ohio, were active participants as well, opening their homes to slaves on the run and helping them seek refuge there and in Indiana. In all, they rescued over 2,000 people, and the Cottons earned the unofficial monikers of President and First Lady of the Underground Railroad. Frederick Douglass, himself a former slave, housed fugitive slaves in his Rochester, New York home, thus allowing some 400 safe passage and entry into Canada. Other figures included John Brown, a prominent abolitionist who led a group of men in a raid into Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, to free slaves by force—he was ultimately tried for treason and hanged—and William Still, the son of fugitive slaves who kept a record of his activity as a conductor, which he published following the Civil War. It offered one of the most comprehensive and detailed accounts of the happenings surrounding the Underground Railroad, and remains an eye-opening historical text. The Underground Railroad was more than just a literal and figurative movement. It was a concerted effort to right the wrongs of and fight against one of the most heinous of human crimes, slavery. Between 1800 and the end of the American Civil War in 1865, some 100,000 souls had escaped to freedom. It was by no means a small task or an easy feat, and it truly is a testament to their willpower and determination. Though the fight for equality was far from over, it was thanks to the Underground Railroad and the brave men and women who served it that would pave the way for both total emancipation and the civil rights movement nearly a century later. The price for freedom has always been high, but clearly one that's well worth the cost. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. It's February, History Fans, which means that it's Black History Month. Every Thursday this month, beginning with this episode, I will be spotlighting figures and events in African-American history, and I hope that you'll join me. Remember, if you like what you hear and would like to support me to ensure continued quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. Once there, you'll be able to choose monthly support plans in three different tiers that fit any and all budgets. Be sure to listen and share as well. Every bit counts, and I'm grateful to all of you. Tune in next Thursday for another special Black History Month episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week.